What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. As the war in Ukraine continues, today we hear from Mikhail Zigar, renowned Russian dissident and journalist who speaks about how misinformation and propaganda has helped sow the seeds for Russia's invasion of its neighbour. It's the topic of his recent book, which is War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. In conversation with Zigar is Edward Lucas, columnist at The Times and an expert in national security. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy the full-length version, you can support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or subscribing to our channel via Apple. Now let's join Edward Lucas and Mikhail Zigar in conversation. I'm Edward Lucas. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Mikhail Zigar. He's a writer, journalist, filmmaker. He worked for Newsweek Russia and Commerçant, the Business Daily. He's a foreign correspondent covering conflicts in the Middle East, Iraq, Serbia and Kosovo. And he was also the founding editor-in-chief of Russia's, at the time, only independent news channel, Dojd. Um, which was a big alternative to the Kremlin propaganda machine and now, of course, is in exile. Mikhail won the International Press Freedom Award in 2014. He's the author of several books, including All the Kremlin's Men, which was a number one bestseller in Russia, available in English. And his new book is War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Um, Mikhail, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Hello, Ed. Thank you for having me. That's a huge honor for me. Great. What I love about your book is um, its historical scope. It goes right back to the days of Kiev and Rus, and we will talk about that in a moment. But the thing that really caught um, caught my attention at the beginning is it's a kind of, not exactly a love letter, but a sort of apology letter to your friend Nadia in Kiev, and you used to go and stay with Nadia whenever you were there, and you say very sadly that she doesn't talk to you anymore because she thinks you're an imperialist. And in a way, your book is a, is a kind of attack on Russian imperialism, and I suppose it, in a way also sort of an apology to, to Nadia. Has she read the book? I don't know. You know, the book, uh, the book has just been released in English, uh, and... I'm not sure if it's going to be released in Russian or in Ukrainian within the upcoming months, at least. So um, I have no idea if uh, if she has heard um, about this book, but I hope that I hope that she will. And I 
I I hope that that many Ukrainians will uh, will read this book as well. Uh, I don't I don't mean that this book is written for the Ukrainians because uh, Ukrainians have a lot of uh, brilliant authors uh, who, who have written a lot of very uh, important books on Ukrainian history. This book is not Ukrainian history. That's that's a history of Russia. Uh, and Russian imperialism, but I guess that this approach to to the Russian history would be very important for Ukrainian audience as well as for the Russians. Yes, it's it's interesting. I have many Ukrainian friends who just say they're profoundly uninterested in anything the Russians have to say right now. Um, there's a kind of feeling that it's time for the Russians just to sh- to shut up, whether they're Kremlin Russians or imp- lib- what they call liberal imperialist Russians. It's all um, pretty much the same thing. And we'll, we'll get onto that in a, um, a bit later on in the discussion. But I, I want to really kick off by introducing your book to the audience. And you break it into two parts. There's seven tales of colonial oppression in Ukraine, um, starting with the um, sort of appropriation of Kievan Rus um, by Russia and ending up with the um, appropriation of the World War II story from a Russian imperialist point of view. And then you follow that up with seven tales of, seven tales of present day oppression in Ukraine, starting with the way in which um, Ukraine struggled against Soviet rule in that era and ending up with um, what you call how Vladimir Zelensky stopped joking. Um, so do, tell me, why did you, 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 why did you decide to do it this way, this sort of first the, the distant past and then the more recent past? First, I think that the distant part, the distant past is very important because uh, unfortunately, history is very much alive and, he, and uh, historical mythology is being always used to uh, to explain the current political situation to to justify the war. Unfortunately, Russia doesn't have any uh, proper history, uh, uh, although uh, it ha- it has always had a bunch of historical myths uh, or propaganda or pro- propagandist myths uh, which were used for the benefit of the power. Um, so, I. Right after the war started, I felt uh, some kind of moral obligation to uh, try to destroy traditional uh, historical narrative, imperialist historical narrative of, of Russia. And I think that it's, it's, it was such a shock to, um, to convince a lot of people that we need to imperialize our history. And we need to start writing it from the scratch because most of... Uh, uh, traditional um, Russian historians were uh, imperialistic propagandists. Uh, so yes, th- this this book is probably my first step in in the long way uh, to try to debunk the imperial myths. Uh, I've got uh, seven most impo- important myths about uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, that I don't think that um, my my work is done uh, with this book. Indeed. Well, I, I, you, you start off your um, introduction by saying that um, the uh, it's a kind of it starts off by saying it's a confession 
and you say that Russian writers and historians are complicit in facilitating this war, and it's their words and thoughts over the past 350 years that sowed the seeds of Russian fascism and allowed it to flourish. You say, we failed to spot how deadly the idea of Russia as a great empire was, and we overlooked the fact that for many centuries the, quote, great Russian culture belittled other countries and peoples and suppressed and destroyed them. And then you go on to, 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 to these, these seven myths, which have proved so deadly today. Now, we, we don't have time to go through every bit of the, uh, of, of the, um, of the first seven or the second seven, so we'll have to pick out a few. And I want to say to people who are um, watching and listening online that we'll be talking for about another half hour, and for the final 20 minutes of this, um, you'll have a chance to put your questions. So if you feel I've uh, miss something out you can um jump uh, jump jump in and highlight that and i'll be particularly happy to have uh thoughts many ukrainians who are listening but i i suppose that the, the it all starts off with this idea that um kiev and rus is somehow something to do with modern russia and that is something that putin believes absolutely profoundly um that ukrainians have appropriated um, something that's profoundly Russian. Whereas, of course, from a Ukrainian point of view, it's exactly the other way around, that Rus has nothing to do with Russia and that the true heir of um, the ancient Rus is modern Ukraine. So um, for those who haven't followed these important events of 350 years ago um, so closely, just talk us through the first of your myths, the myth of unity. Mm, yeah, actually, I don't start with uh, with Kiev and Rus. I, I start with uh, much more recent, much uh, closer past with uh, so-called uh, mythical uh, reunification, so-called re reunification of uh, of Russia and Ukraine, uh, a, a infamous treaty between the Tsardom of Moscow and Cossack um, uh, Hetmanad. Um, the the contract signed b between uh, Tsar Alexis and uh, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, um, and it's it's really important that it was perceived in a very different way by by different parts. For Cossacks, it was it was just a, a contract signed between two equal parts, uh, but um, Tsar of Moscow did not get that idea of a contract. How uh, how he could. Um, sign any contract with uh, with anyone. So for, for him, that was just a pledge, uh, and that was the beginning of uh, of all the um, miscomprehensions between the the the, the Russian authoritarian power and uh, and Ukrainians. Yes, but I mean, and I think the point is that to have the, the myth of reunification, you have to have the myth of unity um, at the beginning. And you go through this and um, you then follow it up with the story of Ivan Mazepa and his um, row with Peter the Great and then Catherine the Great's tussles with the Cossacks, from which we see how um, conflictual this relationship was. And of course, from the Russian point of view, they see the Ukrainians as sort of disobedient little brothers who go off and do things like making alliances with the Swedes that ends with ends in disaster. Um, whereas from the Ukrainian point of view, it's really quite different. But let's, let's get on to the question of language, because this is something that is at the heart of the war now and of Russia's imperialist attitude to Ukraine. And um, But it, it has very deep roots. Um, so um, for those view, viewers um, to this 
discussion who aren't familiar with it. Um, talk us through the story of Taras Shevchenko and how he battled slavery, which you call the myth of language. Mm, that's that's very important, uh, uh, important and, and symbolical, a symbolic figure for for Ukrainian history. Uh, that that proves that Ukrainian language uh, was not. Uh, as Russian imperialists uh, usually say, a deviation of, uh, of Russian or some, some wrong Russian language. And uh, uh, Ukrainians were, were speaking um, Ukrainian language for centuries. And that's, that's probably an important difference between, uh, let's say, Austrian Empire and Russian Empire. Uh, they had very different perception of uh, uh, of eth- ethnic minorities, for example, Ukrainians who lived in uh, in Austrian Empire, uh, they were from the start considered to be second-class citizens, uh, and they could not reach uh, the the higher um, classes. They they, could, uh, they 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 didn't have opportunity to become the part of the political elite. But at the same time, the, there was no discrimination uh, uh, in terms of language. They could speak uh, Ukrainian language. Uh, at the same time, in Russia, everything was uh, very much different. Uh, Ukrainians could become very uh, could become part uh, of privileged uh, Russian society with only one condition: uh, if they abandoned their Ukrainian background and if they um, spoke only Russian. And and there are a lot of examples of uh, uh, ministers, chancellors uh, of Ukrainian background who uh, stopped speaking Ukrainian, who, uh, who started speaking Russian. And um, so it, it was, uh, that's very important because Russian Empire was, was being built as a political, uh, as a political nation. Uh, anyone c- could have become Russian, uh, abandoning uh, his or her own, own uh, culture and started uh, speaking Russian. So that's, that, that's why probably the, um, Russian language and Russian culture bears additional responsibility for for the crimes of uh, the Russian Empire. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Yes, it's interesting how language has become a political category. There's this phrase in Russian of Russian speakers, and we saw this um, already in the very early 90s with a man called Sergei Karaganov came up with something called the Karaganov Doctrine, which elevated the Russian speakers to a political category and said that the Kremlin had the right and indeed the duty to intervene in other countries on behalf of Russian speakers. And the, the people at the time who thought that um, this was as um, sinister as creating German speaker as a political category. And we know how that ended in Europe in the 30s. But people were very unwilling then in, in that era to accept um, that this was that this was this sort of linguistic ethno-nationalism, if one can call it that, was um, was sinister. But of course, it comes back now um, very, very uh, clearly in Putin's distaste and the Putin propaganda machine's sort of idea that, that the Ukrainian language is something that is so sinister it has to be eradicated and it's sort of quite extraordinary sort of exterminationist rhetoric um, which come which, which which comes up I was wondering when you were in Ukraine um, for the many the great much report you did a lot of reporting there and you've interviewed many of the leading figures of Ukrainian um, political and public life in the last um, 30 years um, did you learn any Ukrainian yourself mm, I understand perfect uh, Ukrainian perfectly because uh, you know um, every time participating in a political talk show in Ukraine uh, and uh, Ukrainian television has always been very politicized and the focus on political talk shows was enormous and uh, average political talk show lasted for four hours and uh, it has always been a mixture of languages Se several guests uh, used to speak uh, Russian, other, uh, sometimes even even the, the presenters, uh, but uh, majority was speaking uh, Ukrainian and it was okay for everyone uh, uh, talking uh, uh, in two different languages at the same time. So it was, uh, it was a very long school for me. Uh, and every now and then com coming to Kiev, I always uh, was um, going to, to, the, uh, to Ukrainian theaters and then cinema theaters watching a lot in Ukrainian, so I, uh, for me, it's very easy to to read uh, Ukrainian books and to to listen to to uh, Ukrainians. Um, so I'm I'm not an active speaker, but um, I I think that I I know Ukrainian language very well, and I know uh, all the differences. I I can read uh, Shevchenko in. Uh, in, in his original. Yes. It's, it's very interesting you say that because um, when I lived in the Soviet Union, I was very struck by the kind of profound asymmetry that everyone in the Soviet Union spoke Russian, but almost no Russians spoke anything other than Russian. So you always had to, and, and it had echoes to me of um, and perhaps the, the British presence in India where um, if you want to yeah, get that's, on. That's, that's the same uh, as with, with British Empire. And yeah, 
Yes. Many, 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 uh, many people speak English uh, do not feel obliged to, to speak other la languages, unfortunately. Yes. Um, so um, we're going to fast forward a bit to the uh, you, you, you touch on one of the other myths, which is um, the which Putin has said quite recently that Ukraine is just a creation of um, of Lenin and the result of the territorial division of the Tsarist Empire following the Bolshevik Revolution. We could have a whole um, an hour's discussion on that, and with all the interesting literary and historical um, aspects, such as Bulgakov's great novel The White Guard. Um, but I think we we can't do um do justice to anything involving i think, Russia, I think that that that's just pathetic that idea that lenin invented ukraine it is, is just yes. ridiculous but i think it's it, we, we have we have to spend a, a few minutes on the the hunger the, the um the, the the hunger genocide the holodomor um which is probably the defining um event of the century of the past century for for, for ukraine um and um is even more traumatic and catastrophic than the events following 1917 and it's still it's become now a very important part of ukrainian historiography but not so much of um of of, of russian um and of course then followed followed on by the by the stalin great great terror um what, what would you say what's the myth about the holodomor in russia that you're trying to attack mm, you know it's very interesting that uh Russian historians, as well as uh, uh, Russian journalists, uh, um, usually justify some crimes uh, by telling that that was that was normal. That was normal situation. It happened to everyone. As if uh, now they they are comparing the, the aggression uh, against Ukraine, uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine, uh, to the. Uh, um, American war in Iraq, saying that okay, they did it. Why, why cannot we do the same? You know, uh, they they use um, terrible crimes of others to justify uh, their own crimes. Or um, um, when speaking about Holodomor, the the usual um, explanation is there was there was a, a huge famine everywhere. Uh, there was yes, okay, there was famine in in Ukraine, but also in Volga region. And also in Kazakhstan, so there was nothing uh, uh, extraordinary about that. Yeah, everyone was dying, and and that's and that's um, that's a huge mistake. That's uh, um, famine in Kazakhstan does not explain and does not justify uh, the great crime of of Stalin's regime uh, in Ukraine. And uh, Holodomor in in Ukraine obviously was organized and, and pre-orchestrated by by Stalin because of his hatred. Um, towards Ukrainians because he didn't trust Ukrainians and it was not only about the, the 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 great famine it was also the huge attack against Ukrainian culture and uh, no Russian um, uh, usually is aware of the of such a tragedy of Ukrainian nation as um, executed Renaissance uh, the greatest um, poet, poets uh, writers philosophers. Uh, of you of Ukrainian nation were were arrested executed um, sent to gulag and that that happened at the same time when uh, most uh, Ukrainian villages were were dying out, out of hunger so that that was not just uh, a part of the full picture that was an pre uh, an organized campaign against Ukraine and uh, it's 
it's really ne- it's really needed to understand that for for many Russians as as well as for for the international audience. I want to just touch briefly now on the question of Stepan Bandera because it's interesting how um, the this brings together two of the great um, sort of Russian um, sort of Putin era uh, propaganda tropes. One is the absolute centrality of the cult of victory in 1945 that um, Russia is the inheritor of Soviet heroism and the glory of the defeat of the the Third Reich, and that anyone who disputes this is therefore ipso facto a Nazi, and that uh, and then the second great thing of, is that the Ukrainians are ungrateful and rebellious, and and Bandera, who was um, at least a part of the war, a Nazi collaborator, though also later on a Nazi, uh, a prisoner of the Nazis, um, uh, the leader of the Ukrainian nationalist in, in, in insurrection, uh, is, a, uh, is, is a lightning rod for both of those. But it's still something that, that troubles many outsiders when they look at Ukraine. They say, yes, we support Ukraine in their stru- struggle against Russians, um, but why torchlight processions for, um, for, for, for Bandera, who is tarred with anti-Semitism and with um, many other, and also the massacre of, of Poles in Volhynia. So the, for, for, men, for many Russians who basically support Ukraine, Bandera is a, a, a very serious sticking point. Um, explain how you, how, what, what's, what's your treatment of Bandera, both in terms of his wartime um, activities and his role in Ukraine now? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that history should not be uh, very simplistic. It it has always been very complicated, and all those details are important. Uh, if if someone calls Bandera to be a Nazi collaborator, he's not more Nazi collaborator than Stalin, because um, actually uh, Bandera stopped um, any cooperation with with the Nazi regime. Uh, Right, accidentally, but right uh, after um, German invasion of the Soviet Union, because he uh, he and his um, supporters of uh, organization of Ukrainian nationalists pro- proclaimed independent Ukraine, and that was um, something Hitler did not anticipate and didn't want. So Bandera was sent to the um, concentration camp and spent most of uh, the World War Two. In the concentration camp, um, and Bandera's idea and Bandera's only goal was to, to establish independent U- Ukraine, and he was very, uh, very principled in uh, in those terms. Uh, okay, and if we compare, if we um, to explain that to a broader audience, uh, we might remember that um, many leaders of. Uh, Indian independent uh, independence movement uh, during World War II were also supportive uh, of um, Hitler, not because they were Nazis, but because they were against uh, uh, British Empire. So yes, uh, Bandera was against Soviet Empire, and that was the main, the top priority for him. Um, and yes, for 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 you for, for Ukraine today, uh, uh, Bandera is at the same time very symbolic. At the same time, uh, very divisive uh, figure. But I think um, the current war, the current war uh, has made a lot uh, to accept that uh, that figure, uh, because um, 
now we, we have Putin as the, the real fascist, as the real Nazi. And we, we have seen the real evil as Russian uh, aggression against Ukraine. And that, that makes uh, most of the decisions made by Stepan Bandera um, very much uh, un- understandable. Yeah. I want to whiz on to the um, the man you describe as the most popular politician in the world, um, Volodymyr Zelensky, and you chart his rise first in the world of television showbiz and then into politics. But you draw a very interesting point, which I, I want to bring out, which is that the roots of his um, approach to, um, to television lie in a in a, in a Soviet era program, which is really quite hard to um, describe, it was the club of the sort of the, the cheerful and, go, and, and, and go-getters, and it was, it, it's it's very hard to explain to an English-speaking audience. It was the most popular program in the Soviet Union. I yeah, watched that, it many times. A, yeah, so, so, a ch- championship for stand-up comedians. Yeah, a for championship for comedians. Stand-up comedians. Yeah. Um, so, so, so talk us, talk, talk us, talk us through this because the sort of um, Russian-Ukrainian um, culture and memory wars were played out sometimes in skits on the where different teams from different parts of the Soviet Union would sort of compete to satirize the the news, and then it was and and, and it's that program really which was a sort of the, the roots of Zelensky's own comedy programs, which made him uh, rich and famous in Ukraine even before he became uh, became president. You know, yeah, for me, it was very important to uh, to tell that story and to show how the humor was changing because it shows very clearly the tra- trajectory and the trend, how the mentality uh, of uh, Ukrainian society and Russian society was changing after the collapse of the Soviet Union and that uh, the jokes that were that seemed to be appropriate in early 90s um, have become uh, terribly insulting uh, during during the last decade, and uh, the society, the two societies of two di- different countries, um, have changed a lot. Uh, but it's also that very important that um, that Vladimir Zelensky himself was changing, and uh, he started as a just um, pure stand-up comedian, and his humor, his sense of humor, has become very politicized. Uh, and uh, it has become a very important factor. Uh, for example, in 2014, when when he uh, made a sketch about Vladimir Putin and his uh, supposedly mistress Alina Kabaeva, and Zelensky himself was playing the role of Alina Kabaeva, uh, and that was probably the first moment when when Vladimir Putin uh, heard of Zelensky, and so the first thing he knew about the the new president of Ukraine or. Uh, that, that time, uh, 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 definitely presidential candidate. Uh, he knew that that's the guy who played Alina Kabaeva. So that was a huge insult uh, for Vladimir Putin from the beginning, something that um, he could never tolerate and forgive. You also bring out the very strong streak of what one might call anti-Ukrainian racism um, in both the Soviet and Russian discourse. Um, I was very um, struck by the fact you dug out something which I remember um, from 1991, I think it was, which was the final New Year's um, program 
of the the last year of the Soviet Union, when they didn't quite know who was going to conduct the, the you know, give the sort of the New Year's toast, because Yeltsin was politely indisposed in one direction, and uh, Gorbachev was um, already out, and a, a comedian who I think was called Zadornov um, just had a sort of string of really unpleasant anti-Ukrainian jokes, and this is something that has been been a, a, a hallmark of um, Russian discourse. Since then, the idea that Ukrainians are sort of hicks or rednecks or sort of um, basically um, basically stupid, and I've always been very struck by how few Russians were willing to call that out. It seemed to be sort of the only acceptable Russians who would be ashamed to make jokes about um, Jews or black people um, were quite happy to make jokes about Ukrainians. Um, well, I think that we've come a long way, and uh, that that I. Uh Somehow, in early '90s, and even in during the late uh, year, uh, the last years of the Soviet Union, uh, the, there was an idea that that Russians are the, are the people who are suffering the most. They bear all all the responsibility and they pay all the costs of uh, living in the Soviet Union, and they kind of pay for everyone. They work for everyone. They supply everyone. They feed everyone, and they are. They are very offended for um, because all other uh, uh, nationalities want to leave Soviet Union. So that idea that that Russian people were betrayed by uh, Lithuanians, uh, Georgians, Ukrainians, Kazakhs, uh, and so on was very popular, and was uh, that was something a lot of people felt um, in early '90s and later on after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's it's really strange. It's really weird. That's the product of uh, the post-Soviet propaganda, um, and that's that's the source of uh, of that weird uh, mindset uh, shared by uh, Vladimir Putin as well as many Russians. I think you're 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 absolutely right that there's there's it, and and there's an odd equivalence between this sort of Russian solipsism. It's all about us. And the Orientalist approach in the West, which thinks that it's all really about Russia. And one of the things that I noticed during, during the Cold War and then in the 90s and the noughties was how enormously Russian focused all our supposedly Slavic studies or Soviet studies were. And although it was on paper, um, 15 so-called republics of the Soviet Union and many other countries which have Slavic languages, in the end, there was an enormous sort of sort of discourse hegemony and epistemic privilege to use the sort of jargon words for the Russian language and and, and, and Russian literature um, but I just want to get a, bit, a little bit more on contemporary Ukraine before we, we, we might um, circle back to that um, in the in the questions, um, but you have um, several examples of in your what you call the the the, the, the present day, um, and one is the very striking um, anti-Ukrainian prejudice from Joseph Brodsky, who for many people, me included, is one of the great heroes of the um, Soviet um, dissident movement, and we read with you. Know, tears in our eyes, his lonely duel with the um, prosecutor when he's on trial in St. Petersburg in the, you know, the, the Len Leningrad and is asked, who gave you the authorization to be a poet? And yet his poem on Ukrainian um, independence 
um, is from 1992, I think, is absolutely disgusting. He says the um, you're going to be gang raped, and um, the Krauts and the um, the Poles, the Polacks, are going to gang rape the crap out of you. And it's this astonishingly nasty poem. And of course, that's echoed by, I mean, from way back by Pushkin's um, um, anti-Polish poetry, but also to some extent by Solzhenitsyn's um, you know, rather more gently expressed. Uh, attitude to, uh, to to Ukraine. So, just talk us through this sort of strand in even among the greats of Russian culture, the sort of inability to get Ukraine as a, as a, as a place and Ukrainians as a people. You know, that's I think that's even broader question. Uh, we need to uh, address all the uh, mistakes and all the sins of Russian culture. Uh, and we we cannot uh, pretend that uh, they were they were saints. They were um, always right. They taught us uh, humanism, and that's it. Uh, that that would be fair. Um, yes, Russian imperial R- Russian history was very imperialist. Yes, a lot of uh, mm, great figure or figures considered to be great Russian writers, great Russian poets were human beings and some of them wrote terrible things uh and and we we don't need to hide we we should not hide it we should not judge them we should not uh discuss all those issues as um other cultures did um was kipling uh cancelled for for his uh poem about white man's burden that was a terribly racist and uh, he was not the only one uh, to to uh, to express racist uh, ideas. Uh, a lot of uh, Russian um, writers, uh, for example, Dostoevsky was was terrible Russian nationalist, and he considered um, uh, Turkey to be a um, a nation that didn't have a right to exist. He wanted Constantinople to become the capital of Russia. Um, a lot of um, a lot of values which were shared by uh, by different uh, representatives of Russian culture were terrible, and we we should discuss it. We uh, that's that's the uh, that's the issue that that is often raised by uh, Ukrainians today, by Russians today. A lot of um, representatives of current Russian cultural elite. Uh, sometimes say, don't touch Pushkin, he's not to blame for, for Putin's crimes. Yeah, we should. We, can't, we, we must not say, don't touch anything. We should touch everything and we should uh, reconsider every, everything. If, if something was wrong, we should admit it. We should confess to ourselves. We should apologize. It's like it, the, there is no space uh, for just forgetting something that was uh, awkward or um, or heated. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to hear the full extended version right now, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd also love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? 
perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.